Hey guys, Troy here. I just want to take a minute of your time real quick before we get to the podcast and let you know about something we got coming up in February of 2022. On February 4th to the 6th, Apologetics Canada will be holding our very first leadership summit. This new initiative of AC seeks to bring together aspiring Christian leaders from across the West Coast for an incredible weekend to empower, equip, and engage. It's an opportunity for young professionals aged 20 to 27 to meet one another and grow together as Christian leaders. We'll be going over such questions like, what does it mean to be an influential leader? Why is leadership accountability so important? The myth of self-reliance, and many others. So join us in the beauty of BC's coastal mountains where you can enjoy fellowship, growth, and a variety of snow activities from skiing, sledding, and snowshoeing all at Sasquatch Mountain Resort. Space is limited and it's an application process. So make sure that you head to apologeticscanada.com slash leadership summit and apply today. We hope to see you guys there. It's going to be a lot of fun. That's all I got. I'll get out of the way now for the podcast. Hello and welcome to the AC Podcast. My name is Troy. I am here with the full squad once again today. We have Andy, Steve, and Wes joining us from the four corners of the globe, except me and Andy are kind of in the same place. But, you know, (laughs) it sounded really good. The globe of Canada. The globe of Canada, yes. I don't think you guys know what a globe is, but that's okay. We'll let it fly. (laughs) Uh, Well, the earth is flat, Wes, so I don't know why this is Uh, a... That's my problem. (laughs) (laughs) anyways Wes you had an exciting event you were a part of about two weekends ago why don't you let our listeners know what you're up to I did yeah Uh, if the listeners are interested in sort of a more expanded recap of that they can go to the Apologetics Canada Facebook and Instagram page I made a little video shortly afterwards where I kind of explained that I had the privilege to be part of an interfaith panel at an Ahmadiyya mosque in Scarborough So it was this event they called Religious Founders Day, and it was myself representing Christianity. It was an Ahmadiyya Muslim, a Hindu, a Sikh, and then there was a Jewish rabbi. And so the idea was, you know, just sort of creating an environment of sharing what all these different religious perspectives held, which was good and and there was a good showing i mean there was quite a few quite a few representatives from different religions within the audience um i brought a few people and then there was a quite a quite a big showing of of muslims and hindus in particular but i was just really praying about you know how how can i make this particular event evangelistic it's kind of an unusual event because it's just kind of presenting who jesus is right that's the quote unquote founder of my religion and so i i while I was praying, uh, I felt really um, moved to say, you know, Jesus didn't didn't just found a religion. That's not the Christian claim. Jesus Jesus actually founded the universe. And so, if you want to understand the founder of Christianity, you really have to understand reality itself. Uh, and so, that's the angle I took. I even quoted "Hark the Herald Angels Sing" in it, so I made it as Christmassy <laughs> as possible, um, well played, and sir. talked about well you know the incarnation. And I think it was really good. Had some really great conversations afterwards. I had a, a Jewish guy come up to me afterwards and say, you know, like uh, he was a uh, described himself as a lapsed Orthodox Jew, and just had some really great conversations because I quoted Isaiah, and he said, you know, I I know that passage, although I've never heard it applied to Jesus. I didn't know that's what Christians did, and so I had a good conversation about Isaiah fifty three, fifty four, and you know the. The virgin who was with child, who would be called Emmanuel, God with us, right? So, and then lots of conversations with 
with Muslims and Hindus about some of those differences. So really appreciative of those type of opportunities. And I think it really uh, was a good transition into into this Christmas season. Uh, The fact that Advent has started and, you know, there's an expectation. And I, I tried to share why Christians have that expectation. It's because we believe that, you know, God stepped out of eternity in the second person of the Trinity and entered into humanity and that matters. That has a big significance on who we are as uh, human beings and what that means. That's awesome. So I got a couple questions for you, Wes. One is uh, I've never heard of this type of of Muslim. So so say that say that again. And what's the like? Do you know the distinction there? I, I like I, I can't even uh, I can't remember how you, what, what how you pronounce it. I just I just know that I've never heard it before. Yeah, yeah. So that's not unusual. Um, so they're referred to as Ahmadiyas. Ahmadiyas. And so the the idea is actually so Sunnis and Shias, which are the two sort of main groups Those of Muslims globally. Those are the two globally. I'm most familiar with. Yeah, yeah, that's the two yeah. yeah. Well. They disagree on pretty much everything. The thing they don't disagree on is they both believe that Ahmadiyyas are not Muslims. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> they're, they're an unusual group. They actually are, for lack of a better way of putting it, they're kind of the Mormons of the Muslim world. They have another prophet after okay. Muhammad, a guy named Misra Ghulam Ahmed, which is where they get their names from. Um, the Ahmadiyyas are named after Ahmed. Uh, and he actually came around in the 1800s, not unlike Joseph Smith, and said he was the second coming of Jesus. So he argued that just as uh, John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah, he came in the spirit of Jesus. And so he had a number of other writings. He kind of had his own theories about uh, Jesus' crucifixion, um, that Jesus actually, which is not an unusual perspective, survived the crucifixion. That's a, uh, a view that a lot of Muslims hold because the Quran kind of alludes to something fishy going on with the, the crucifixion, but doesn't really explain it in Surah 5, verse 57. Um, sorry, chapter four, verse 157. And uh, so they have a theory that Jesus survived. He went off to India, lived his life, and they actually have a tomb for Jesus in India. Um, so in one way, they're very, very orthodox. Actually, if the listeners know the know of Nabil Qureshi, who wrote the book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, he was in Ahmadiyya. So he was actually in his faith and practice part of this group, which is why you'll you may find that if you give Nabil Qureshi's stuff to Muslims, if the moment they discover he's an Ahmadiyya, they will stop listening. Because in their mind, whether you accept it or not, they don't consider the Ahmadiyyas Muslims. So there is a little bit of controversy about that. Despite that, I think, you know, one of the reasons why Nabil's stuff really works is because the Ahmadiyyas are persecuted globally by both Shias and Sunnis. And because of that, they're incredibly devout in their traditional Orthodox practice because they're trying to overcompensate, basically to prove to everyone else that they are Muslim. So they they do have some really weird theology, but the stuff that they believe really fervently and the stuff that Nabil sort of articulates in his books applies to, you know, broader Sunni perspective more generally. Um, but Nabil was actually part of part of this group. So uh, the other thing I should say is that they are a tiny, tiny percentage of the global Muslim population. Um, it's like a fraction, but the largest mosque of theirs outside of India is in Vaughan, Ontario, which is just north of Toronto. So hmm. they're actually a, quite a large 
group here in Ontario. They're very politically active. They're on CBC quite a bit. Um, you, you might not have recognized them as that, but there are. No, in fact, the event that I did, uh, one of the MPs from Scarborough came to the event and kind of spoke afterwards, and she was an, an Ahmadi Muslim. Um, so, yeah, not not necessarily a group that I would expect you to know right off the top of your head there, Andy. Yeah, that's fascinating. Those are some interesting connection points. And given given their presence, I guess, in Ontario, it's probably, probably encountered them a whole lot more there than we're encountering them out here in the West. Well, um, dude, that sounds awesome. So thankful for you, Wes, and the, and the, the work that you're doing, man. And, yeah. you know, those opportunities that we have uh, to share about this hope, which is interesting because I think as Christians— Christmas is an important time for us to reflect on the hope that we have in Jesus and to, uh, to, you know, to, to be encouraged by it. I, I was doing a, a speaking engagement last night where we're doing this thing called uh, Questioning Christianity, and we were talking about the question of questioning evil. And I started the evening off with two questions. The first one was, what is the greatest evil that that you can think of, either currently or historically? And it was just fascinating to see people, you know, naming, you know, event after event or, you know, the, just the number of things that, that people brought up. There was no shortage. And people didn't struggle to think, go, well, I got to really think about that. I mean, you know, you know like it, they didn't have to think about it. They, they had plenty of, of, of examples. But then the second question was, what is the greatest example of good that you can think of? And I remember this lady at my table, she's just kind of like looking at me, she goes, why is this so hard to, to think of? You know, like, <laughs> I, I, I could just nail off all these examples of evil, but you flip that and say, give me some, you know, incredible examples of good. And it was a struggle. Yeah. Man, that's that speaks to the climate for sure, because, I mean good doesn't sell very well like uh, if you if you look at the for entertainment value it's it's immediately slid into being cheesy because i think we have this this idea that like life can't be that good life isn't that good nobody is really that good unless they've been written up into uh, a story or something like that and then the moment you make it about jesus then it's like oh, okay well he's yeah <laughs> it's a fairy tale well, that's it. That's an interesting point, though, because I think this is one of the reasons why it's challenging for us sometimes to to mention something good is if you if you dig deep into an act of kindness, often it'll unravel. Mm. Do, do you know? Do you do you know what I'm saying? Like like philanthropy, like that kind of thing. Right. Where you start digging into well, what are the actual events that took place, or what what were the motives that were actually going on, and. It's not, it, you know, it's not uncommon for some act that we thought was good to mm. unravel and all of a sudden you're like, well, maybe it wasn't as good as I thought it was. Right. It can right. make you jaded. Yeah. I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said, I can't remember if he, he used the word sin or evil, but let's use evil for this paraphrase. You know, evil is the, is the hardest thing to accept but the easiest thing to prove because you know we don't want to believe that we're all really bad you know that concept of original sin but yet i mean we know (laughs) we know we can think of countless examples like you said andy of you know even ways that we continually just uh, are examples of that 
Yeah, and and we whenever we talk about evil, we look for it out there, right? We don't. We rarely look inside of us and we go, "Oh, look how evil I am." Like I, I really appreciate Clay Jones on that point because he talks about how even when we do good things, it's often out of just cost-benefit analysis. It's not because we think it's wrong or evil that we refrain from it. We're afraid of the consequences of what might happen if we have, say, an affair or something like that, right? How am I going to explain this to my kids or what happens to my reputation? All those kinds of things. And so Isaiah was really on point when he says, even our good works are like filthy rags before God. And, and this mm. is something that Jesus gets at in his, in his ministry. He, he challenges this point, which is a point that people have wrestled with, Steve. And I, I'm sure I've brought this up before, but we see this even with Plato. Um, Plato brings up this, this illustration that ultimately becomes <laughs> the Lord of the Rings, where he talks about this cave. There's this giant guy in this cave, and he's got this ring on his finger. Guy comes, takes the ring off of his finger, puts it on his own finger, and when he twists it just right, he turns invisible. And Plato's question was, what would a guy with that kind of power do with it? And mm. his argument was, well, it's going to corrupt him, and he's going to do, do evil with that power. And and ultimately that you know what we see in humanity is well what does what does humanity do with with power well it corrupts people now you know moving moving this back over into the Christmas story where the Christmas story becomes this greatest example of good and it was interesting because as I was asking people what's this greatest example of good I wasn't immediately thinking of Christmas after I thought for a while of you know these moments of good and by the way. To be fair, we've actually had some moments of good out here in British Columbia as of recent. It, it has been encouraging to see how people have rallied together in these extraordinary times with the flooding that we've had out here in BC. And we have seen people take care of each other in some incredible ways. There has been some moments that are worth reflecting on and being thankful for as we have seen some good acts taking place out here. Uh, as people have provided food, shelter, and the like, which is which has been very encouraging. But it, it took me a while to you know to bring my focus back on this Christmas story and remember, oh yeah, yeah, in this Christmas story we have the greatest act of of good that's taking place, and that we're celebrating as as Christians in this incarnation. And so, in this podcast, wanted just to take a moment. To reflect on, you know, how you guys are are thinking through Christmas this season and what you're reflecting on uh, and being encouraged as you reflect on the incarnation. I'm just so happy to get to be with my family in proximity and, you know, and talking with them like, what do you want to do? I'm like, I, I actually don't care. I have no agenda. And I think that's one of the things in, in reflecting on this time from for me is is how, how much I relationship really, really matters uh, more than my opinion, you know, more than my, my political stance on things to a certain, you know what I mean? Like, I think we let so many things get in the way. And at least for myself, with all of the, d the division and topics and things that have gone on, I'm just like, I, I don't care. I would be ecstatic if I never had one conversation about any of that stuff on my entire holiday break. If I if I hear what you're saying, Troy, you're you're saying that you just 
There's no, there's no agenda here. You just want to be with family. That's it. Just, I just want to be with my family. I want to be in proximity. I want to be close. Because sometimes, like, especially if you're, if you've been growing in your faith and those sorts of things, you can walk into a family visit with an agenda. You know, or things are going on in the world, and you know, oh, this family member thinks this about COVID. This fam- you, you, you're just preparing yourself for an argument. You're prepping yourself up for tension. In reflection, it's not even worth it. So you have the moments of even setting up for tension or glory. Like, mm-hmm. I've had this going on, or I got this job, or I bought this house, or that car. And, and sometimes yep. it's a matter of, I want to I tell you about this, this, or that in my life. But are you okay just to sit in someone else's presence and just appreciate the relationship for the relationship's sake? Uh, that, that's an, <laughs> it's an important moment, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I've been thinking a little bit about, I guess, the beauty of Christmas because I, I aesthetics of it is has just really been grabbing my attention, right? So you know, we put up a Christmas tree with lights and we decorate it. You know, I walk outside in the middle of the night. We have a a park here in the city where I live, where the city actually puts lights up on every single tree there, and there's a lot of them. Right, and you go there; it's pretty magical, and especially when it's snowing and everything. Right, um, and just uh, that that beauty of Christmas and, and how we enjoy that that sort of thing. Um, although I, I think I, we sometimes kind of put the emphasis on the wrong thing, right? Because um, what could be more beautiful than somebody saying, "You know what? I love you so much that I want to be with you." If if that means me being born um, in a stable, like Wes, you, you've kind of compared it to in, in today's terms, it's kind of like somebody being born in a public washroom, right? It's it's not, but but that's the kind of setting, like if that's what, if that's what it takes, I, hey, I'm going to come to you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to tabernacle among you. Um, and so that beauty of the sort of love and and not just the sort of the beauty in terms of you know the seeing the light seeing pretty things but real beauty you know what i mean it's it's kind of hard to capture it in, in words but that that beauty has been just really grabbing my attention um of god saying yes i i am going to tabernacle with you you're not going to come to me so i'm going to come to you yeah <laughs> you know what i mean that that kind of beauty you have to reflect on you know it it's interesting i I was thinking about this recently with uh i was watching a tv show not that long ago and there was one of those tv shows where they're making things and people are judging it or or whatever and and they had this this model come on the show to model this this thing that they needed to make or whatever at any rate it was just so fascinating because this one of the contestants like basically melted in front of this model and they like asked him like, "Are you okay?" It's worth watching just out of just the sheer comedy of seeing this guy. And he's like, <laughs> "He's like, well, I've never been in front of a model before." And and he's like, "Her beauty was just like wilting this guy, right?" And it, and it, it was kind of amusing because as I think about God, I'm you you know, you think about the God is that which none greater can be conceived. Like God is ultimate beauty, yeah. but God is also ultimate power ultimate wealth and you, you we've all seen examples of people wilt under power 
right? We've all seen yeah. examples of people wilt under beauty or wealth. Oh, have we seen people wilt under wealth, right? Yeah. You know, God is all of those things, but what does he do? He, he comes wrapped in swaddling clothes, you know, as, as, a, as a baby. And that, that sort of love isn't one, though, that you necessarily, you will will tender it, but you have to reflect on it because yeah. there's a depth there. And the interesting thing is when we see the beauty, it's really hard to deny it. Just just as when you see something evil, right? You see that evil and you, you're just repulsed by it immediately. I think something similar happens when we observe beauty. Um, and, and it was funny, a, a number of years ago, Bart Ehrman, which many of our listeners know, I'm sure, um, agnostic New Testament scholar leaning towards atheism, um, he kind of created a bit of a splash, especially among Christian circles, when he posted this, uh, when he posted about Christmas. I'm, I'm just going to read it to you real quickly here. Um, it's not that long, but he says, The God of Christmas is not a God of wrath, judgment, sin, punishment, or vengeance. He is a God of love who wants the best for people and gives of himself to bring peace, joy, and redemption. That's a great image of a divine being. This is not a God who is waiting for you to die so he can send you into eternal torment. It is a God who is concerned for you and your world, who wants to solve your problems, heal your wounds, remove your pain, and bring you joy, peace, happiness, healing, and wholeness. Can't we keep that image with us all the time? Can't we affirm that view of ultimate reality 52 weeks of the year instead of just a few? I myself do not believe in God, but if I did, that would be the God I would defend, promote, and proclaim. Enough of war, enough of starvation, enough of epidemics, enough of pain, enough of misery, enough of abject loneliness, enough of violence, hatred, narcissism, self-aggrandizement, and suffering of every kind. Give me the God of Christmas, the God of love, the God of an innocent child in a manger who comes to bring salvation and wholeness to the world the way it was always meant to be. That's mm. from Bart Ehrman, um, who is known for uh, kind of tearing the Bible apart and sowing seeds of doubt and those kinds of things. Even he recognizes the beauty of Christmas, the beauty of what God has done. I think we have this interesting juxtaposition, which we see in scripture the holiness of God and then how God communicates to us as his people. You know, there's this scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where Susan is talking to Mr. Beaver. Mr. Beaver says, you know, Aslan is a lion. And Susan says, oh, I thought he was a man. And then she asks, is he safe? And uh, she says, you know, I'll, I'll, I think I'm going to be rather nervous meeting a lion and Mr. Beaver's response is safe. Who said anything about safe? He isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. Yeah. And, you know, we have this interesting picture in the Old Testament where people are very afraid when they encounter God. There's this uh, scene in Judges where the, the angel of, of Yahweh, you know, steps into and communicates to this couple um, in Judges chapter 13. And their response is, oh, we're going to die. <laughs> we're going to die because we have seen God. And then I think, you know, going back to John chapter 1, when John starts the story, he says at, at verse 18 that no one has ever seen God, 
but the one and only God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. And it's kind of a weird passage for a number of reasons, least of which is I just quoted a verse from Judges where they saw God. And so you kind of have to ask, well, what's he talking about there? And he's talking about Jesus. You know, no one has ever seen God, the Father, and I think that's what he's getting at. But the one and only God, Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. And yes, you have this God that that is should be at least, uh, we should be fearful in the sense of, you know, God is all powerful. Kind of like the sun, right? The sun is beautiful, provides us with sunlight and vitamin D. But if you get too close to the sun, it's really, really dangerous. Like, don't do that. You need at minimum protective gear. And that's why we see, you know, all of the purification laws and all the stuff in the Old Testament. Um, when the priest needs to enter into the Holy of Holies, which he only does one day a year on, on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, he needs to go through this process to make himself ready for that. And yet the author of Hebrews says that Jesus steps into the tabernacle, he steps into the Holy of Holies, and he intercedes on our behalf. And this God who, you know, we should have a a righteous fear, we should have a, a reverence for, as you just said, Steve, you know, as, as Ehrman, the skeptic, recognizes, despite that holiness, or in light of that holiness, I should say, how does that God proceed to enter into relationship with his people? Well, he does so humbly. Um, the sun could easily burn us up, and there's a danger to that. And God doesn't need to uh, step down and, you know, reverse all of those expectations. He doesn't need to do that, but that's exactly what he does. And I think that's a, a beautiful picture of keeping in balance, you know, the, the holiness and the power of God and the love of God. I think that's like how we were talking on a, a previous podcast. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It's the the reverence for him is recognizing, wow, you could crush me if if you wanted to. You know, that's what you're saying, Wes, is like you could absolutely obliterate me for my sin nature, for the things that I've done. Uh, you wiped out the earth before because of sin nature. But you chose relationship like that is that's crazy. And I, and I think when I if if there's anything that I can think of that is is close to that is almost this level of it, it's that re, this relationship on a whole other level where forgiveness has such a depth to it that you can't help but turn and repent. Right. Like, I, uh, you know, you you think about. I think about in my, even in my relationship with my wife, you know, in our past and whatever we, if we've done each other wrong, we've had an attitude with each other and those sorts of things. It's like, what draws me to repentance is one, the opportunity, but it's two, it's the love that knows I am going to be forgiven by her. And, and, and no, it's not the exact same scale, but that's about as close as I can get. And I think that's why God has used marriage to model our relationship with him, right? When we're really in covenant, it's interesting looking in the Bible, how many promises God made to Abraham, and then he made covenant. He made a promise to keep him going, promise to keep you going. I promise this, I promise, I promise. And then let us make covenant. They went from engagement to marriage. They went from, yes, I will marry you to I do. Let's make covenant. And that is an overwhelming experience because I remember getting on my knee and asking my wife to marry me. But there was a significant, 
I, I, I say power shift, not in the sense of like I was greater or lesser, but there was this, this whole other level of authority that happened when we got to the altar and we said our vows and then signed papers and covenant walked away from there. Like, Whoa, mm. this is, this is another level of relationship. Yeah. It reminded me when you were, were talking about Troy, there's this, this interesting vision in Ezekiel 47, where Ezekiel has this vision and in the vision, he's standing at the temple and he sees water trickling out, which is flowing. And the trickle turns into a stream and the stream turns into a river and the river is flowing out into the desert, leaving a trail of growth and nourishment. And he even says that it flows into the Dead Sea and transforms one of the most lifeless places on earth into something that's teeming with fresh and freshness and, and, and life. And yeah. so instead of becoming pure first and then going into the temple, which is what we see the priest needing to do, Ezekiel's vision gives us a, yeah, he gives us a picture of God's holiness coming out from the temple and makes things pure and brings them to life. And uh, this stand is a, you know, a picture, a shadow, to use the language of the author of Hebrews, of who Jesus is. Jesus fulfills these ancient visions of the prophets and Jesus goes around touching people who are impure and those who were diseased and even possessed and even dead but their impurity doesn't transfer to him. His purity transfers to them. And then in John 7, 38, Jesus' followers are described as living water, rivers of living water that go out. Um, like what just a, a beautiful picture of, of the way that God treats us. And uh, yeah, and great illustration, Troy, of, you know, the, the balance of marriage. You, you know, it's interesting with regards to, you know, we think of these, these miracles, you know, we often will think about w whether it be the dead being raised up or the lame that walks or whatever it is. But what we see this miracle that's happening all through Jesus's ministry is lives that are transformed. And, and I think sometimes we're not as compelled to those miracles because we don't see them as clearly, uh, you know, as, as some, the lame walking, it's an immediate thing, but in, in, following Jesus, it's this relationship that's developing in this person, and you're seeing the dead come to life, but it's it's this spiritual life that's returning as this person is 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 walking with God. And it it I'm learning that this is the greater miracle. That the lame to walk, I, I think, is ultimately easy. Uh, but to see the spiritually dead come to life ultimately is going to cost is going is going to require Jesus' life but is is this greater miracle that you see happening in people's lives one of the things that i've been i've been reflecting on with regards to christmas and the incarnation is the way in which god brings about his promises as you as you were talking about troy with regards to covenant and 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 what what god's doing relationally God does that relationship relationally. It's not like it's God, you know, coming in this pillar of fire or floating on a cloud, you know, and the, these dictates sort of idea. But God comes and walks with Abraham, and there's this relationship that that forms as God, you know, is telling Abraham what he's going to do through through him and Sarah. And how he's going to bless not just them, but he's going to bless the whole world through them. 
and and we see this relationship developing and I, I I find it so fascinating how you have both this old covenant, you know, this first covenant, and then you have this second covenant that that comes through Jesus. And both of these covenants are founded in um in a child. So the first one with Abraham and Sarah and and God telling them, listen, it's not just a child, by the way, it's a it's a miraculous birth that's going to take place. And it's this birth that's just so outrageous that you understand that this is not the work of anything other than God is is working in this relationship and is going and is bringing about uh, his promises and and I think it's interesting, by the way, back to Wes, the, what you, you know, as we started this podcast and talking about, you know, the founder of our faith, which, which is interesting. Would, would we say that Jesus is the founder of our faith? Now, I like how you kind of pivoted that as, well, he's the founder of the universe, right? But, you know, what, what would we say, what would Jesus have said? I, I think Jesus would have said, and on the one hand, yeah, he's the founder, but on the other, he would yeah. say he's the fulfillment. This th- this is an interesting topic because actually the Jewish rabbi who was the participant in that event did something that I agree with, but really caught me off guard. It was a female rabbi, which I think gives away a few things about sort of the, the orthodoxy of the rabbi. But she started and she said, you know, uh, while thinking through this event, I was trying to figure out, well, who are the founders of modern Judaism? Well, was it Abraham? Well, not really, because Abraham wasn't a Jew. And then she kind of went through Jacob, and she went through Moses. And she actually said, the founder of modern Judaism is um, Rabbi Yohanan, who was the guy after the destruction of the temple in AD 70, who took Pharisaical Judaism and transitioned it into modern-day rabbinical Judaism. And I thought that was really interesting because I made the same argument at another interfaith panel with a rabbi, an imam and myself, which was on the Abrahamic faiths. And I argued in that, that actually, if you wanted to follow the Abrahamic faith, it's not Islam because Islam ethnically and theologically really doesn't have a claim on Abraham. And Judaism left Abraham when it went into the Pharisaical and uh, rabbinical thread that it is now, and that if you really want to follow the faith of Abraham, you follow Christianity in line with sort of Paul's Mm -hmm. argument in in places like Romans. And I didn't expect the rabbi to do that, but that's what she did. So she actually disconnected, Mm -hmm. you know, Abraham and the Torah with modern modern day Judaism and connected it more to the Talmud. And so I think in that sense, um, yeah, I just found that really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And that's where I would say, that's a good point, Andy, that like, yeah, who is the founder of our faith? Well, well, we're accredited the righteousness that Abraham was promised, right? In the very beginning, that the fulfillment of, you know, your your uh, your children will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands of the, the, the desert. Well, that's that's the church. And so here's what gets interesting then. Who's the founder? Well, it's God and people. It, it it's God making a a covenant, a relationship with Abraham. Yeah. And saying, I'm going to bring this about, this blessing together, which is mind-blowing. God doesn't need you, but he chose you 
and he's gonna we're, he's gonna do this together. And then <laughs> people suck, and they suck so bad. You speak for that yourself. God knows this. <laughs> that that he that he actually enters into the story as as the child, right? That's ultimately in this new covenant that's going to bring about what we are incapable of doing in regards to keeping up our end of the relationship. That and ultimately it's going to be through this child in a, again in another miraculous birth with Mary and Joseph, but particularly Mary and 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 God. And I think I think some credit, by the way, has got to be given to Mary. Catholics tend to give Mary a lot more credit than uh, Protestants do. <laughs> in that Sarah, at the miraculous birth, laughs, right? But Mary's like, well, all right then. You got to talk like, to my husband, right because he's going to be mad. <laughs> <laughs> but yet, you know, here, here's what, what, what God does, in that when we see then Jesus, what we're seeing is God's faithfulness. God's participation in our humanity and his willingness to go to an extreme length of humility and love mm. to bring about that promise. Yeah, and even you see that kind of parallel even between Isaac and Jesus, right? That's um, right. So you see Abraham, okay. So he received, to Abraham's credit, right? And, and so a Abraham is given all these promises, right? That God made this covenant of land, descendants, and blessing of the whole world through his family, and that culminated really in the person of Isaac, his only son, whom he loves, and God says, "Sacrifice him to me." And what does Abraham do? Is like, okay, I will do it, right? And you know the story, right? They go up on the mountain. Abraham ties Isaac. By the way, Isaac carried the wood for the sacrifice, so he probably wasn't just a little kid, right? So Isaac was also obediently going with Abraham. He gets up on the altar. He's tied down, about to be sacrificed. God sends his angel and says, nope, don't do it. I myself will provide, right? But what, what God does in the New Testament is that God sacrifices his own son, and this time the knife didn't stop. Now, Steve, here's something interesting, too, just to further this point that I've been reflecting on with Abraham's story. Notice what happens right after God promises Abraham this miraculous son that he's going to bless everybody through. What happens right afterwards is they walk along and God points out the evil that's happening in Sodom and Gomorrah and says, I'm going to destroy I'm going to destroy evil. And Abraham then bargains with God. And it's this beautiful passage, right, where he's saying, God, surely you're going to do right. Because what if there's righteous people in those towns? Would you not save that town for 40 righteous people? And God's like, of course. He's like, yes, I'll save it for, for 40. And then, right, and then you know the story, right, is Abraham barters with God down to 10. But every time that Abraham's bartering with God, God's like, yeah, 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 for the righteous, I, I, I won't, I won't. The, the interesting thing in the end, though, is what, is what does Abraham say, right? He says, surely the judge of, of, of the universe, right, will yeah. do right. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I think it's interesting because it's this moment where Abraham's saying, God, 
I trust that you're good and that you, the judge, will do right. I do find it interesting, though, as, as we reflect on God's promise to us, how often we question whether or not the God of the universe will do right. I have an interesting point about that, but before I say that, that story has one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible, Genesis 19.24, because it says, after you have Abraham dialoguing with God, he goes off, and it says, then Yahweh rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah from Yahweh in heaven. And that's and that's one of your favorite verses well, you know in the why? Bible? <laughs> because there's a Yahweh on earth. Yeah, that was my next there's question. There's a Yahweh on earth. Yeah. And he's communicating with the Yahweh in heaven. Well, there aren't two Yahwehs. Mm. There's only one Yahweh. So what's going on there? Well, once again, I think Abraham was dialoguing with the pre-incarnate Jesus. Yeah. That's my thought as well. And I think then Jesus walks yeah. off and then Jesus lifts up some, a message to the Father. And then the Father rains down the fire and sulfur from heaven. And I think that's one of these pictures of, you know, Jesus pre-incarnation. There aren't two Yahwehs, even though Yahweh is mentioned twice in there and mentioned in different physical locations. Um, just to, to mm -hmm. kind of capitalize on that, uh, especially what you were saying with kind of giving Mary some credit, in the beginning of, of the gospel, according to Luke, you have a series of angelic appearances. Uh, one of them is to Mary, and then the other one is to Zechariah, and they kind of have the same message. And I remember reading this when I was younger and juxtaposing the different, you know, uh, Gabriel appearing to Zachariah and then Gabriel appearing to Mary and thinking, what's going on here? Because Gabriel appears to Zachariah and says, hey, Gabriel, you know, you're going to have a kid. And Zachariah says, I don't know how this can happen. And what is Gabriel's response? He says, I'm Gabriel. I stand before the presence of God and I've been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words. Well, Mary basically has, you know, the same response. The, the angel comes to Mary and says, hey, Mary, don't be afraid. You're going to have a boy. It's good news. And Mary responds with, how can this be? You know, and they both kind of have biological, uh, biological um, uh, grievances, right? Zachariah is like, hey, I'm really old. I know how this works. It doesn't work like that. Mary's like, hey, <laughs> I know how babies are made. That hasn't happened yet. How is this going to happen? Well, you know what? The Gabriel's response to Mary is, you know, oh, you know, don't worry. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And the one you will be born to you will be called the Son of God. I remember thinking, wait, 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 wait. Why is Mary kind of like given an explanation? And Zachariah is struck dumb. He's he's not able to speak. It's because of the way <laughs> it's because of the way they asked Wes. 100%. Mary said, How can this how can this be? Yeah. And Zachariah was like, How can this be? There, it's just there was just difference in the energy. Yeah. You know what's interesting though is that um uh Mary's response is out of out of confusion. Zachariah's response is out of skepticism. You know, the angels mm. the angels answer to Zechariah is actually implying that Zechariah and his wife have been praying for this. They've been praying for a son and the angel shows up and says, it's going to happen. And he says, I don't know if that's going to, I don't know if I can trust that. Whereas Mary is saying she's, her response is that she doesn't understand it, but she trusts. And I think that, especially, you know, on an apologetics podcast, you know, 
the attitude towards our doubts really matters. And I think we see that in the reflection of Mary. Mary was a servant who trusted that God would fulfill her promise. Zachariah was actually asking for something and didn't think it was going to happen. And then when he's told it's going to happen, he's still trying to find, you know, the, he's still trying to find the objection. And I think, you know, that really communicates and should communicate to us, you know, the, the messages of angels and apprehension um, that we may have when we also are, you know, praying and seeking God. Mary, Mary goes a long way for being a really good example for that. So yeah. Troy, so you you weren't too far off. I mean, they did ask the manners in which they asked; they were different. So there oh, you I go. know I'm right. I know I'm right, Steve. <laughs> I know. <I'm> right. <laughs> That's that humility at Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> How can uh, this be? <laughs> no, I, I hope that I hope that you know, listeners, as you're as you're celebrating the birth of of God's promises. Um, of God's covenant, covenant that he began with Abraham and this this covenant that he fulfills in Jesus, you know, and in this covenant again that he begins with Sarah, you know, through this child Isaac and then again fulfills with Mary through this child Jesus. That this is this is this is cause for us to celebrate on so many different levels as we were talking about today. This is always one of my favorite podcasts that we do with, on AC is as we just share how we are reflecting on on Christmas this year and is how and and how we are in, encouraged in Christmas yet again. And I I think especially these last couple of years, man, have we needed to just take time to reflect on the hope, the joy the peace and the love that we have to, to celebrate at this time, pray that it would encourage you, mm. that it, it would encourage you that, and maybe this would be a good just thought to think about as we end here, that as, as great and as powerful as something like, as Wes talked about, the sun is, or as large as the universe is, which is disturbingly big, God's love overpowers and overshadows all of those things, mm. and that we don't have a God that we need to fear uh, but a God to hope in and to be in relationship with, that that story continues, that relational story continues and is one that we get to celebrate and be encouraged in. Mm. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Thank you guys so much for joining us on this week's podcast. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, and it has been an amazing, amazing year. We are so grateful for each of you tuning in week after week. We pray blessings over you this Christmas season in remembering why we celebrate. Uh, make sure you like and subscribe and uh, interact with us on social media and have some eggnog on behalf of all of us at AC. Unless, unless you're lactose, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do it. <laughs> As always, love God, love people. Bye for now. Troy, you love yourself some eggnog, hey, buddy? Are the prairies cold? <laughs> Come on. <laughs>